How now, brown cow? How now, brown cow? Brown cow. Oh man, just got off the uh, podcasting with Van Vickle because we're also doing a seek episode. Your other lover. With... <laughs> and Luke, Dave Van Vickle told me to tell you hi. Hi. I love Dave. We should record with him again. He wants to. He said that. He said he would love to come on and uh, and and plug all of the things he's doing. Good. I, I think we should plug all the things that he's he's doing. Yep. And uh, everyone, if you can, please give to. Uh, there's. Well, I'll put this into the show notes. Nice. Luke put it into, into the show notes. Uh, there. So if you guys don't know this, uh, he has um, his wife has cancer, and they have uh, and they and they have a lot of kids, and they have a few who have pretty intense. Um, yeah. special needs so they need all the financial help that they that they can right now so yeah. uh, i have given um, i've given um multiple times as as have a lot of our friends and i just really want to in i want to just ask you that if there's a thing this month you're like hey what 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 can i tithe to or hey i don't want to tithe to my archdiocese because they're awful not that uh, i'm not saying they're like mine it's supposed to say oh i don't know seattle um I have no idea if they're bad or not. <laughs> Please have us out there on Strategies of Seattle. <laughs> no, but like, uh, like really honestly though, if if you have anything that you can give and give God has put it on your heart, I uh, really ask you to give to that because it's a it's it is um, a it is a really um, it is much needed. And Dave does incredible work for the American Church right now. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that man. Uh, he, he's getting a lot of not good news about his wife's uh, cancer. So, um, yeah. So he he he. It's it's really funny because every time I get off the phone with him, I have a bunch of people who are like, "Oh, you know, I heard everything is bow. How are things with him and Amber?" And I'm like, "Actually, we don't really talk about it. We have a little, you know, what's going on? Oh, not good. Okay, let's go." And I think it's uh, more of a break for him than you know having yet another person in his life who's going to ask him the the hard question you know yeah deal with hard topics all the time topics. so yeah. so he's but he's doing great he no longer works for the parish life he got out he's into freedom he's doing something separate with a, a priest um out in pittsburgh and uh i don't entirely know what he's doing but it's basically building a think tank around evangelization and discipleship so that was his dream and he's doing it Dave's Dave's the guy to do that. I really believe that. If you have a lot of money that you want to give to like a church thing, and you thought about giving it to us, <laughs> you're welcome. Maybe yes. still do that. But, <laughs> but Dave is legit. I, I remember the first time I ever heard Dave um, lead. He led like a worship thing for a household one time. Still don't yeah. really know why, but he did. Yeah. And um, it was like I was like, oh, cool. Dave's doing that. I didn't know that Dave does that stuff. And. Uh, he um it was like incredible mm-hmm. and i was like oh oh dave is really good at this yeah and he's not one of those people who like um want you to know that they are really good at that not gonna i i'm not gonna name any names or anything but one might rhyme with bicycle normally <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> and you go to layevangelist.com and book me for a parish mission or anything real. I'll detail your car. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> detail your car. So please, can I, can I detail your car? Sir, just start a business. No, no, no. You give me for the whole time. So whatever you want, I'll talk, but I'll also detail, detail your car. Your car. <laughs> it's called building skill sets. I want to do this across the board. I, do you need a bench, sir? <laughs> I will tell you about like the book of Job. I will detail your car and build you a bench. It, it'll have wheels. It, you can pull it in your garage. You can do other woodworking projects that I know you're going to want to do. It's in my rider. My time is yours, except for when I need to get away. 
which is about 80% of the time that I'm going to be there. Except when I need to poop or I need to do a podcast with Luke. Those are the exceptions. You're going to have to handle the calls to my wife and if my kids need any sort of discipline or anything like that. <laughs> or just hold up my phone when we do FaceTime video chats. You just got to – I'm like, hey, honey, look at this beautiful drill. It's a DeWalt. <laughs> no, here's to us. Here's to us. Here's to the night you felt alive. Um, hey, I got a follow-up for you. I got some questions right. for you. How was the Project 86 live show? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, so, Is there something interfering with your happiness, or is it preventing you from achieving your goals? Healing is something that the Lord wants us to receive, but healing is always an invitation from God. Quite often, he asks people to, to you know, take a step out. We have to take action, and a great way to do that is through a group called BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, and I'm going to send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone obsession so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Those are weird, as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so that they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel like you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is indeed available. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. You can go to BetterHelp.com slash reviews and read some of the testimonials that are posted daily. So this is what we're going to do. We have a special offer for podcast listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash foxes. You go to slash foxes and you will get 10% off your first month. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional counselor. BetterHelp.com slash foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Should you have drawn a black line over it? (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm glad that I watched it. I was really hyped. I was really, really hyped yeah. up for it. And you were at an 11. Yeah, I was like, I was more excited for it than I thought I was going to be. Like, truly, uh, when I was like, when, when I had it on about to start and they had a the little up countdown thing and they had some cool music playing in, in the background, a really cool up graphic, I was like, I am legit pumped for this. And as soon as it began, I was like, uh, okay. And then um, we have to understand about this band, and I've talked about them way more on my on this podcast than I ever than I ever than I ever thought that he would. Was I heard them at the perfect time? I was I was seventeen, and so it was this. It was not just the band; it wasn't their songs, but what their songs were about, and it was also the uh, the uh, band's aesthetic that I really liked. And so, to me, Project Eighty Six is the whole band. It's and it's um, like each of the guys in there and what they bring and kind of the vibe that they bring to the band. And which is a, it's, just, it's kind of it's one of those intangible things where it's just it, you would think it's not really that big of a deal, but it actually kind of is. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. just the lead singer. And I thought it was the other and like the other dudes in the band, I, him, I guess, haven't talked in like 10 years because he's like an egomaniac, apparently. It's, and so, what, an English lit major who writes poetry <laughs> instead of songs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he like, you know, um, uh, from Orange County, I'm shocked, sir. And um, it uh, and the guys in the band were actually like really pissed that he was doing this. Oh, that sucks. So, like, the old guys. And there was a thing on, on Facebook 
where they were like, wait, why are you doing this? Like, it was a whole, and then, like, I saw this during the concert, and then he um, deleted all their posts, and, like, it was it was just kind of weird. And I was like, oh, because I, I, for, for, I don't know why, I mean, again, I haven't paid attention to them at all in a long time. And I knew the guys, I just thought, like, perhaps, like, I, I don't see how you could play this album without those other guys, because it really is this, um, it was really a collective piece is probably the only way that I can really, ex, you know, explain it. Where like it was kind of one of those bands where you knew what the, what the guitarist Randy like what he brought and why his background on vocals were kind of important to the song and the tone and stuff. And so to not see Randy doing the backup on vocals on certain, I was like, what? Like it, it just it like it just throws the whole thing off. And so did, it was, did Andrew Schwab, the lead singer of Project Eighty Six, become a truthless hero? <laughs> no, one last disc, guys. <laughs> I would imagine he's probably just like one of those people who has really big dreams, has really big ideas, and like sees them through. So the thing that like probably made him able to do a band like this at the level that they did is also what makes him insufferable. <laughs> How do you deal with people like that? You know, I I actually I did a podcast way back when uh, called the Tent Maker Pot uh, Podcast, and I oh was yeah talking yeah. About- and I actually brought that up, and I, and I proposed, like, I wonder if St. Paul was kind of like that. Oh, I, I would believe it. I would definitely believe it. If it was just kind of like, dude, you have great ideas, but, like, shut the hell up. <laughs> not not St. Paul, but Andrew Schwab? He's telling <laughs> yeah, St. Yeah. Paul to no, shut no, the hell no, up? No, 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 but, like, I mean, just like. <laughs> so, like, listen, Paul, like, I could call like, you Paul, right? Like, did, like, shut I mean, he, <laughs> did, did, did the apostles roll their eyes any time that, that he began to speak? I could just imagine Paul in the back, like, while the apostles are speaking, he's rolling his eyes. Yeah. Oh, are these one of the reputed pillars? Okay, okay. Oh, here we go. Here's the party of the circumcision. Uh, buckle up. Uh, I'm going to teach you what Abraham really means. And then he just goes <laughs> off. If you recall, I killed half of you. Anywho. <laughs> I killed your dad. I killed your dad. Now I'm about to kill your crappy arguments. Let's go. Woo! Paul for the win. Paul for the win. <laughs> <laughs> I am the sequel to the to all the Gospels. No one saw coming. <laughs> you thought Acts was about Peter. Only the first ten chapters. It's kind of like how, like, like in Marvel, you really think that they're going to build up Phase 4 to be to be all about um, Captain Marvel. But people are probably really going to want um, Doctor Strange and 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 Spider-Man. So like, wait, what? Okay, we have to change everything to be about this person now. Yeah. <laughs> Plot twist. I mean, it is funny because Paul Paul did alienate tons of people. And the, because there was so much intrigue because of the party of the circumcision, they were <laughs> fracturing Christianity so aggressively. But Mark ended up abandoning Paul. Barnabas at one point, who was Paul's like closest companion, ended up abandoning him. They eventually reconciled, but yeah, it was, it was, I mean, he had a lot of solitary solitude. There's an excellent book by, um, and it's on Audible for all of our, our listeners who do not read like me sometimes, but um, it's on <laughs> And if Paul. we had an Amazon store, we could put it on there, but whoopsies. Well, I do for Lay Evangelist. I'll include the Lay Evangelist <laughs> code, but uh, no, it's by uh, N.T. Wright on Paul, and he goes through it, and it's honestly, he deals with the. The fracturing, and it is, it's it's heartbreaking. It really is. He, he endured a lot of loneliness. Do you think a lot of that was, was that a self-imposed thing that like, listen, well, that's what you get if you're going to be like this? I, I don't know. I don't know because it's so hard because there's so much contention between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that how much of it, like Peter, right? Peter lived like a Gentile and then the Jewish party came and then he freaked out and then began in, in uh, living like with the Jewish party and separating himself. And Paul like yelled at him in his face. So there were so much there was a war for what is the gratuitous grace of christ like that that was the war right like how does judaism relate to christianity 
And it really wasn't through Moses, it's through Abraham is the answer that Paul would give in, a, in, a, in an oversimplified way. But, but the, that's, a, that's a big distinction, yeah. though. Yeah. It's a big distinction. That's yeah. why, I mean, like, just read Galatians 1 through 4, 1 through 5. Just read Galatians. It's six chapters long. won't take you that long. And the argument is, if you are in Christ, you are an heir of Abraham. And you're like, what? An heir of Abraham? What about Moses? And it's not that he says, oh, screw, you know, forget all that stuff. Because obviously Jesus identifies himself with the Paschal Lamb, which is the Exodus stuff. But the idea is, like, Deuteronomy was like a quarantine of the sinfulness of Israel. Jesus is liberating us from Deuteronomy and restoring the mode of worldwide blessing through Abraham. But Paul constantly was pushing – I mean, he went to war with the party of the circumcision. I mean, Galatians, he says, would that those who would circumcise you, would that they would mutilate themselves? Like, maybe the knife slips and they cut their own junk off. Like, he was – angry at these people and but it is funny there's one thing that i i I was listening to with uh jordan peterson he was being interviewed by a woman on the wage gap between men and women and he said it's being overblown because you don't understand the that there's many causes of the age of the wage gap between the genders and he said one of those is he's like i'm not denying that there is a downward pressure on female wages just because they're women He's like, I'm not denying that. Quit saying that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it's also a lot more complex. For instance, if you have of your five personality traits, if you are – if you have an agreeable personality, you are less likely to demand a raise if you're agreeable. And he said, and more women are agreeable than men. And then he said, if you look at CEOs and the best managers, the best higher-up people are the most disagreeable personalities because they know the mission is more important than your feelings, whereas the people who are more agreeable – don't think that. They think your feelings are more important than the mission. And so they tend to kind of not get into those management positions where there's more money. And I think about that in terms of, like, people who get crap done to that level. Mm-hmm. To that level. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah, yeah. to have a disagreeable personality. Yeah. And you can be a wonderful person, but you their feelings, how they feel, matters less than the reality around it. And so St. Paul, I think, was definitely that person. <laughs> I definitely think that. And I thought that about people like, uh, you know, let's say, oh, Matthew Kelly. Um, like, is he just, a, you know, from what I've heard, a not – or even say, a, you know, Dave Ramsey is kind of like a um, better example. There's kind of – there's been a bit – there's been a bit of a reckoning with him and the culture that he's created at the Financial Peace University or whatever the hell he calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, and do – but, like, if you're like, yes, but, like, look at what – Yes, he's like this, but look at what he's done. He has changed tens of millions of lives through his financial methods. And I'm not saying yep. that, like, it justifies, like, like, where do you draw that line be- between, yes, I'm being a jerk, but, I'm, you know, I'm going to look at all the stuff I have done, and yeah. I'm, but I'm actually treating human beings poorly now. Yeah. yeah. Where does that, I mean, uh, I think probably the classic example of this is, uh, in terms of the, of the last half century, would be Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Truly, a, a, you know, could be an atrocious human being. You know, I've heard stories before of him. I'm firing people in an elevator because he answered because they answered a I'm a question wrong. They just wanted to ask him. Yeah. Like, but then Steve Jobs created phones, not, not phone, but like, you know, like the yeah. modern iPhone. Like yeah. that. My favorite story is Steve Jobs and what a disagreeable personality he could be. And uh, it was he was he was with his like board and the senior VPs. Right, so these are the people that he knows well that he works with because Steve Jobs worked in every department of his company, and uh, he said that they're sitting there, and it's like two minutes before the meeting starts, and a guy I don't know who it is sits down next to Steve, and he goes, 
So, Steve, how was your weekend? And he just looks at him, and then he looks away, and he rolls his eyes, and he goes, can we please elevate the level of this, of the, can we please elevate the intelligence of this conversation? (laughs) And it's like, okay. Like, that's the disagreeable personality that it takes to run the world's largest company. Like, that's a game changer. But does it take it, though? Or is it a way to do that? Uh, I, I think, I think. I think you have to have a disagreeable temperament, but that doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, there's, I think, one of my favorite Steve Jobs stories. I did not see it going this this way. Uh, this, this was in his biography that came out uh, right around the time that he that he died. He was dating Joni Mitchell or something, I, I think, who at the time was kind of an still up-and-coming um, pop star. Like, pop star, like, pop, folk, pop, bleh, pop folk musician. And didn't have a lot of money, but she was kind of a big name at that time, which is kind of how that tends tends to go. And uh, they were at a store, and like she like she sees this like like you know shirt that she likes that's a couple hundred dollars, and, she, and she's like, oh my gosh, um, this is great. And, and you know, best point in time, Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. He's worth like you know tens of millions of dollars. This is you know like early early Apple days. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh yeah, cool, you should buy that, and like walks and like walks away. <laughs> like, <laughs> and she was just like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so funny. So yeah, but, funny. Um, well, but do you think like, well, but like when, when do you, when does that line get crossed though? Do you think it's just, is it, is it violating human? I mean, like, is it when you violate, is it when you just become a jerk that you're like, man, I really don't like be, being around this person or is it, does there have to be some sort of real violation to occur? I think we have done a very poor disservice to the jerks in Christianity. And I'm going to say this. I I think we emphasize niceness. We emphasize niceness when we talk about charity and not real charity. Like we talk about tough love, but that's just love. Tough love speaks the truth to people because you know that what they're doing is destroying them. That's really what tough love is, right? I think we overemphasize niceness in Christianity, and it really is uh, cutting people it's cutting people off from access to the stronger parts of them. And we're trying to create nice boys and girls instead of new creations. And I, I do think that we are – if we don't make people feel pleasant, I think there's a narrative kind of in the back of our head that I'm not a good Christian if the people around me don't feel the pleasant side of love. right? And I, I do disagree with that. Padre Pio was a jerk. He was a jerk. St. Jerome was a jerk. Because they were too busy getting crap done and saving souls than they were to, like, sometimes deal with people's emotional states. And I think our culture really doubles down on the value of our interaction is based on my subjective emotional – what I'm left with emotionally after that interaction. And so I think we evaluate our personal prayer time. We evaluate our liturgies that way. We evaluate our entertainment that way. And we evaluate our – you know, like, if someone makes you feel – I mean, like Christ says, the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin and judgment. And it's like, well, no, the Holy Spirit is love. God is love. God, God makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And it's like, no, he's ultimately there. He gives you the warm and fuzzy so that eventually you'll carry your cross and feel cold and clammy on top of Golgotha. Like, that's the point. Mm. But mm. I think we're scared of that. I'm scared of that. Like, you know me. I'm a people pleaser, right? I mean, yeah. I, have, yeah. I, I, I used to be terrified of confrontation, 100%. And when I would confront people, it was already past the line of my emotional threshold. So I lashed out or I dismissed or I mocked instead of taking the time early on to be like, hey, man, I don't think this is going down a right path. 
or and I, I think not, and, and, and this might fall under the mocking part. And I don't mean to like I'm yeah. a single you out like, or you would do this. But I think we were no, all please. guilty of this, especially in especially in um, in college. We would just gossip. Yeah. We'd say, oh, this person is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, let's just, like, make fun of them unmercilessly behind their back. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but but because we were acknowledging perhaps what was a real reality of of that individual, like a real thing, a real issue, a real obstacle, a real – like, we felt justified in doing so because it was real. I just had a conversation with someone at work about this. I said, when we don't – like – if if I'm scared as a man to tell you what I really think, and you're doing something wrong in our company, in our nonprofit, in our family, whatever it might be, and I don't confront it in the beginning where I just say, hey, man, listen, can we talk for a second? I don't think this is good. Whatever you use to tell someone, it's it would start off as a little error. It's going to become a big catastrophe. But I think there's this element in our pride where we're like, well – I'm confronting the – like, you know you're not saying what you need to say. And every time you see that person, you know you should say something, but you don't. So how does your pride deal with the fact that you're not being a real man or woman? It, I think gossip is that outlet where it's like I'm actually talking about the problem, but it's in a fake way, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like go- yeah. gossip is the pornography version of having a difficult conversation, conversation. with the person we need to because it becomes passive aggressive, right? I'm going to destroy your reputation with That's everyone who can't point. solve the problem. It's almost like the same thing as like the as like you know uh, you know how you like all of a sudden you said I'm going to work out and you create a workout plan or you like you get like when you plan a vacation quite often is almost as fun as the vacation itself yeah because your brain somehow experiences the um, joy of that trip and then releases all the endorphins and stuff yeah it's that same thing it's like yeah. a fake version of the of this real thing that's a really good point that's a really yeah. good point but i will say this okay so let's say you actually get the stones to confront the person and you're really nervous. So I would recommend to everyone, I tell this all the time now, crucial conversations. Get the book. It's an audiobook too. There's podcasts where they talk about this stuff. And follow their method of how to actually have the difficult conversation because it's really powerful. And I've, I've talked about it before, but I have used that probably 30 or 40 times since I got the book. And it's just you start off with the facts. You list them out as you see it. You then give your interpretation of the facts, and then you invite them to destroy your interpretation of the facts because chances are they're seeing things differently. And if not, then you can call them out on it. But here's the funny thing about what you just said. Like, like if you're going to lose weight the worst, or like start a fitness program or do something, the worst thing you can do is tell a ton of people before you actually do one thing because just like Luke said, you get the endorphin rush, you get the compliments, you get the affirmation. Oh, that's good for you starting that workout plan. And then when you – yeah, way to go, Chubbs. Uh, but then when you don't do it, like you already got the dopamine hit as if you've done it. But the cool thing is when you do it, there's a, a quote from Nietzsche, which is um, joy is feeling your power increase. And I like that idea because it can you can take that in like a demonic way, sure. But it's also <laughs> like this sense Ultimate of – Ultimate cosmic power. <laughs> Itty bitty living space. <laughs> But you can have this thing of, like, over your own life, right? And that's why I love the carnivore diet. I don't even care if it doesn't work like or does work. There's this placebo effect or there's this side effect of, like, I had no control over food to the point where doing something like Whole30, like, terrified me. And now I look at Whole30 as, like, oh, my gosh, that would be such a break from what I'm doing. It would be so relaxed. I don't have to think so much. I can go, you know. It, it's funny because, like, it's given me a little discipline where I didn't have discipline, right? And there's a secondary 
endorphin dopamine hit that you get when you realize like, oh, this area of chaos, I now have a little bit more control in. And I heard the psychologist say it's they actually have a term for it in uh, in psychotherapy of you know how people say like oh the the journey is better than the destination it's like the the difficult part of walking the path and then when you get there it feels really good but for just for a little bit and then you like need a new thing even if it's a huge achievement the career of my dreams whatever it might be and the guy that was talking about it, he said imagine if you keep doing that you'll keep getting that feeling during the journey and then when you realize it and you're like okay he said now imagine if that goal was transcendent that's the power of god in your life and he just did this total like he's just talking about like growing morally like becoming an agent of moral worth and then he and then he flipped it to the religious thing and you're like Oh, wow, if my ideal was transcendent, there's an element of I've attained, but now I've still got more to go. I've attained, but I've still got more. And so you have that. I, I thought that was such a cool plot twist to it. Huh, yeah. Hmm. This was a good, I did not expect to have this conversation. This was very good. This is what happens when we record at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. And <laughs> oh. our endorphin, we've rested. <laughs> yeah. We're not t- oh, the last time I'm just like, I don't know. What do I think about things? I'm so tired. Is this even real? <laughs> Are you real? Even- <laughs> yeah. People, you got to understand, I had to cut 20 minutes of the show last week that we posted on Friday. Not because uh, – literally because – Luke was so tired. Was tired and crap. Yeah. <laughs> Luke Luke was so tired because he had just come from a thing and it was late for him. And I got nervous of his silence and I filled it with junk. And I just kept talking and talking and talking. And then I would pause and Luke would pause for a long time. And he'd be like, and then so it's like, and then I would keep going. And I was like, delete, delete, delete. Yikes, yikes. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like editing has to be so tough because it's just like, hey, here's the worst of yourself. <laughs> no, editing is tough for yeah for two reasons one oh this is really good but it does i think the listener it's too much of a sidetrack from the main point that i think yeah. the listener sitting at home would be like what or oh my god i have to actually listen to this train wreck of an episode <laughs> like <laughs> i have to do this like 16 times yeah. if you're Crap. gonna if, you're, if it's gonna be a train wreck at least have it be an enjoyable train wreck for the love for yeah. the love no but I um so I want to uh I would love to keep I'm talking about this but I know that we've kind of exhausted the yeah. topic yeah yeah or should we just keep going no um <laughs> uh, I want to kind of take a right um a right turn and uh talk a bit of do a bit of a follow up to the topic last week where we talked about symbols and symbolism symbolism <laughs> did you put that audio quote well uh, number one it's the there? title of the show is symbolism, symbolism. yeah and um. I probably put that quote in about ten times throughout the episode. Nice. Sometimes okay. I literally, I literally have it right behind one of us saying symbolism. You can barely hear it, but it's there. <laughs> and the best thing of That's all, so that, funny. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing of all about editing last week's episode is right when you were talking about your most angry with the DC stuff, you were like, "I could just f- fucking punch him in the face." Do you have something ruining your happiness? It was you reading the, the ad for BetterHealth.com, and one of our one of our people got it, and they were like, "The ad spacing was so perfect." <laughs> I listened That's to your awesome. rant like six times. I'm like, where would be the perfect time <laughs> that I could cut in this when Luke's like most angry, and it wouldn't interrupt what Luke was saying. <laughs> So in case you're wondering, 
it's like a minute five, I think, something like that. <laughs> you uh, have you ever like had a thing where you're like in r- real life where you're uh, where you're um, talking about something and and you thought, ooh, this would be a, this would be a good spot for a um, catching foxes bit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yes. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I think in those terms sometimes. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's literally my relationship with Brian Jones, who works across the hall from me. We go back and forth, kind of like me and you do. Almost every show, we find a way to like take something, you know, killing the light in their eyes when they die, or what, you know. And we just feed, me and Brian do that all the time with each other. So, <laughs> I like yes. to watch their eyes where the light, where the light goes out. Um, <laughs> that was the creepiest part. So I would, I watched the boys, and that was a one line in um, season two of the boys. And I was like, "Whoa, yes, is dark." Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I was, I was, I'm thinking about this last last night, and I don't know why, because it was late and I was tired. And That's but probably I, I why. Thought, yeah, I have this. I started to, I started um, to think about a king's crown, and I was what? like, okay, "Okay, so you have a crown. What, like, why do we have that? Well, this was this was a symbol of like you know who this person was and about you know all that stuff." And I'm like, "Okay, that's you know that's kind of because that, that is a symbol now that really you know that is." Truly, I think one of the best examples of a um, of a symbol that we all understand what it means, but we don't have it any. We don't have it anymore, but it still carries a bit of weight. And then I so then I started to look up like like why did they do this? Like like what did the crown actually mean? I mean and like by look up, I mean like the Luke Carey kind of I'm a look up for it's like half a minute of the first page of Google. So you know, <laughs> like take this with a grain of salt. And one of the things that that was on there that I thought was so interesting was the idea of like legitimacy. Like this is how you knew this was this person. Like they were the ones who were able to wear this crown. And I and I started to really I don't think when we see a crown, we don't think about it in those terms. I think we think about it in terms of power. Yeah. Which is true to a certain extent. If you were a king, you held a you know depending upon the size of your kingdom, but you, you definitely, ha- like, you had power. There's You can't deny that. Yeah. But there's also this idea of responsibility. Um, I never really understood that until we were in, uh, we were, uh, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if any of our um, listeners are aware of this, but at our school, at, at like, uh, at um, Franciscan, they have a study abroad upbringing. We were able to go yeah, to Yeah, we've uh, never Austria. talked about yeah, that Yeah, for a semester. Yeah. And we made wonderful decisions. Um <laughs> And uh, I remember in my class talking with one of talking with uh, one of my, one of one of my professors there. There, say if you really look at people who were part of the quote unquote nobility, one thing you'll see is they were they viewed themselves as having the responsibility to like keep safe the people that they were responsible for, and they were supposed to protect the church and protect this thing known as Christendom. And he tells a story of how this. I think this was. Um, I believe it was what's this guy's name? Oh shoot, um, Habsburg Otto Otto von Habsburg. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, he was the he was the last crown prince of the Austrian Hungarian Empire. His uncle's the one who was shot that started the First World War. France, um, Ferdinand. So we had the distinct we had the distinct honor of being able to see him on the, to like see him talk. Yeah, and. Oh, the professor there told this one story of how when he was at the UN, John Paul II was was like I'm like giving this talk. And um, this Irish um, Protestant dude started to like scream at the Pope and like yeah. you're you know you're the Antichrist and like 
blah blah blah. Audubon Hopsburg then went and he like um grabbed this guy and just like he had a sign that he room. was holding up yes, near the Antichrist. That's right. And he ripped the sign in half and dragged the, dragged guy. the guy out. And so he asked him like, "Why did you do that?" And he said, "I don't know. It was just like my instinct. Like that's what I was raised to do was to protect the church." Yeah. And I think um which is crazy because he was the UN ambassador from Hungary, which was behind the Iron Curtain. And so his job was so delicate to be a head of state as an ambassador, but also deal with trying to build this within his own country. Yeah, his it was he his was life one is of, crazy. Yeah, when I like to see him talk and hear the level of intellect yeah. that he had, and just the um, this was a man who was raised to be a king. Yes. You know, and, and yes. you saw, like, it was so fascinating. I believe his dad's a saint now. He mm-hmm. died a couple of years ago, but I think his dad's a saint or he's a blessed. Yeah, so. he's, they're, I think they're blessed. Uh, his dad, I think his dad and his mom are blessed. They yeah. were the ones that prosecu- that ended but prosecuted the war, uh, World War One. And so there's a lot of protest about them being blessed because that's where chemical warfare was first used. Um, chlorine mm-hmm. gas was used by the Austrians, but... Um, yeah, it was just it, – it's a crazy situation, but they um, – apparently they were very – it's almost like the opposite of The Crown, see, the newest season of The Crown, which I haven't watched, but I was I've, talking – I've watched a few episodes of it, but yeah. Yeah, but like, I, like Queen Elizabeth never breastfed her own children and like all of that – like everything was done for them. It was the op- – not the opposite, but it was very different for the Catholic monarchy of the Habsburgs, the Holy Roman Emperors of the Habsburg dynasties and stuff, that they were very close with their children. Um and so I, I don't know. I just found that like an interesting side note. The legitimacy and responsibility really comes through in season one of like, oh, gosh, I'm now the queen. Everything has to change. Like I now have the responsibility of the empire, you know, and I don't think people realize that like we I, I think us common and common folk think of kingship and royal authority as like the height of power and indulgence and freedom. But yeah. It's actually the opposite. Yeah. It's the it, it's yes. almost like the heights of. The lack of freedom, right? Yes. Because and you the have, responsibility is so burdensome. You, yeah, yeah. You ha, you have a burden, and that like your whole like all of your cousins are all um, trained to take on this burden as well, because everyone knows that if you die, it's got to go to someone. Yeah. So they're all and it, it and like why I bring so like I, I think there's um there is there is a tendency to take a look back on the past and go, oh, I wish things were like this and they'd be better than how they are right. right now. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I have started to experience, well, I have started to reflect upon things of the past as it relates to Christendom and attitudes and beliefs and practices that people had that I think have made parts of a modern American culture look really shallow and incredibly hollow. Yeah. And I think about this crown and the idea of like this is it, this let people know this is the legitimate king and people uh, had like tons of different outfits back then and half the time your outfit that you had was to yep. express what not just like who you were but what responsibilities you had and yep. how that was part of your personhood. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the comment on in Democracy in America by um, Alexa de Tocqueville, right? The whole thing that he says is. America is exceptional because they were a country born without aristocracy, whereas in Europe, the history of aristocracy is so heavy it affects everything. And he said the aristocratic age is defined by a great chain that goes from the lowest commoner to the highest king in every country. And you know where you are on that chain. Just like you were saying, the clothing that you wear, 
all of this stuff, you know where you are in that chain. And maybe some people became obsessed with power and just moving up the chain, whatever. But you, the, the, the beggar on the street had a relationship to the king. In America and in the democratic age, not only everything's flattened, so there is no great chain, but also all the individual chain, uh, the whole chain is delinked one from the other. And so he said the democratic man is homo solus, the man who's alone. Because in every other country, familistic views of society is what rules, and you fit. But in America, it's the de- democratic man, and every man is responsible, and this was the New England ideal. Every man was responsible for his city, for his neighborhood, for his local church, for his, right? So it's a flattening, but you're kind of alone. And then if you don't have that civic responsibility, if you don't have that sense of, like, I am responsible for these things – then it becomes a power trip instead, and that's what you have with our politics today. It's more of a power trip than it is a responsibility, right? Well, and, and, I, it, and it's crazy. I think that's the thing that we tend to miss. Like, as Americans, it's ingrained in our brains to rebel against aristocracy. Yeah. Like, it just yeah. – or to think that a, a king – in all of our films, the king is never the good guy. <laughs> Sans maybe Robin Hood because it's – like, that is a folklore that we have stolen. Yeah. Like, yeah. it uh, – I mean, we've kind of inherited it. But, like, yeah, like it's yeah. – they're like, what movie has the king as the bad person? Hardly any of them. Uh, that's a good person. The king has a good person. Hardly any of them. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what like what movie ever has the king as the good guy? They're always yeah. the bad guy, right? Yeah. And I, I think when you talk when you talk when you talked about um, that chain, the, the, when I and as I think about the crown and like what you know like what it symbolized, that meant that the king was responsible for the welfare of the beggar. Yeah, we tend to put this Marxist interpretation on that, but I think, and again, I am not a scholar, so feel free to tell me I'm wrong. But when you look at like uh, when you look at like Karl Marx's critique, it's of the industrial um, revolution. It's yeah. everything kind of post like post Renaissance. Yeah, yeah, um, almost post Enlightenment, kind of at the tail end of that, then the beginning yeah. of modernity. And so there's this thing where we we I think we take it and we apply it to all of this all of this stuff, and it's not really true. And I, I and so when I think when I like like where do we go with this? Is I truly want to find a way to bring about all those symbols in my life more because I think there's it's a way of, of expressing reality where I'm in jeans and like I'm in jeans like a t shirt and shoes right now. And what does my outfit tell you about myself? Yeah. Nothing besides the fact that I have like a day off, so I'm not really deciding to. And, and it's like they did this all the time, but there's, there's got to be some better way, I think, of us trying to express reality. Well, okay. So, right what you said, it's not like they did all the time. Think about before the Industrial Revolution, I used to always be mystified in the Old Testament when they give gifts to people and it's like, and 20 garments. You're like, what? Garments? Why are you giving garments? Well, it's because no one had garments. You had the clothes you had, maybe one backup, and that's it. People walked about, like shepherds walked about pretty much just in their loincloths most of the time. Most people, uh, if you were a day laborer, Could which you was... imagine? Right, I know. Right, I mean, hello, sign me up for that. Hey, shepherd boys! But Swing you have this... <laughs> but you have this... Like, we don't think about it in that in this time because we have the cotton gin. We live post-cotton gin where you t- get the cotton, you feed it into a machine, and now you can crank out thousands of cheaply made outfits that everyone can own, two, three, four, twenty seven hundred versions of that thing. But so... And I think about it in... I think about this all the time. A comment you made maybe two years ago about a director in a movie decides... 
every detail, even the color of the cars in a panning shot of, you know, like you had said that you said like every detail of a scene is laid out intentionally. Mm -hmm. So when the camera pans in, you know, they have this uh, studio set in L.A. that has a bunch of apartment buildings built in it and homes and stuff like that. It looks like a city, but it's all a set. So that way they can fill it with cars and control every detail so that the color of the cars won't detract from the actual television show or the movie that you're watching, right? It won't detract from the scene and the main focus of the scene. And you start to think about it, everything is filled with that level of intentionality. Uh, when you start to look at it in terms of um, what were we just talking about, the what was your last statement? Shit, I'm losing it. Like, like how, like the all other oh the clothes, clothes the clothes, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the when you don't have a lot of clothes, the clothes you have have to have more meaning. Right, so mm -hmm. if you're a poor mm -hmm. laborer with your hands, your clothing has to represent that. But then when you go to synagogue, your clothing has to be different. When you're a king, you that's why it's like universally kings wear blue and purple. Right? So they became royal. So colors mattered more back then than mm -hmm. colors matter more now. Yeah. Because for us it's like, oh, this is seasonal, or oh, I want to wear this, or does that go with your eyes and your skin tone? For them it was this is the way this is my persona. This is the way the world views me and the way I view myself in the world. But now, because of a lack of scarcity, we have a lack of intentionality. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a really good point. That this lack of and um because we've lost the notion of symbols, we I wonder if we don't know what to do with abundance. <laughs> that's very powerful yeah because then like it's like what do you like what do i do with this like what is like because, so it's i i truly do wonder if like a lot of our anxiety I, I, i'm not trying to say like you have you have really bad anxiety because you you lack symbols um, like i'm not saying that okay I'm, there is a difference between you know like yeah. you have an actual thing where you need a medication and then we're talking about like, cultural underlying causes yeah yeah like is is part of our existential angst that we experience all the time. One, what is, like is this part of that? The fact that we are we so lack like lack an identity that like you know used to have a family crest that's like like this would express who and what my family is. It was it was I'm not just a way to make the first part of your last name look good. <laughs> you know, it was a true, and I think we actually have a bit of this. With branding, like mm -hmm. when you look at a brand, when you look at the way that it, like logo is, the font, the feel of it, the design, you're like, you know, it's supposed to help convey what you want to convey about your group. If you're, you're a group that really likes to do innovative things, if you're a group that is um, very creative, if you're a group that is, yeah. it, that is, and I'm incredibly, like you, and if you want to, you know, convey, we have a lot of stability if you are a financial firm, like that's important. But it only, but it's just, it's just, and it's good, and it's good. Like, like I think those are really actually. That's one of the things why I really love branding is because um, I've been, I've done two deep, um, I've done two deep brandings before, where it's like you pay, you pay, you know, the up twenty five thousand dollars, and you go through the whole thing, and I really like it because you have to really look inward. Okay, like what are what what are we? And I wonder if it would be good to maybe like that my sister. Emily and her husband um, Brian did is they have they have like a stamp that um, that, they, that that they use on um, everything that they mail out you know and it like has their name on there and, and it, you know has their address but it's in a font that's kind of like in the style of their house and it's like they, it's that's it's cool. like I'm very much of them I'm like I kind of like that because it's like this is who we are this is kind of what we want to convey about us 
this is the style that we like to kind of, and I think it even expresses their interest, their personalities. And I wonder if we need to do more things like that. Yeah, that's super interesting. Scarcity, it's almost like scarcity within art, right? Like Yes. Yep. And problem solving. You need constraints you need in order to be creative. Yeah, and that, yeah. that builds the tension that creates, like you're solving a problem, but the problem has to be felt as something constraining. Okay, so right along that. Um, when I talk about, when I talk to, this is the part that I got out of the show last time, but when I was talking to the confirmation kids and trying to get them excited about Genesis one, I, <laughs> I, I, did, I totally What's got that part What's wrong with out. you 12 year olds? This is awesome. Listen to what <laughs> Jordan Peterson has to say about this. So 100% what Jordan Peterson had to say about <laughs> it was, was, uh, the earth was formless and void. And I said, that represents absolute potential. That's what young people are. Absolute potential. You can be anything, put your mind to it. But for you to become anything real, you have to cut your lim- you actually have to cut your potential and choose a thing, right? Mm-hmm. You can't be mm-hmm. everything. You have to because you're not God. So part of creatureliness is embracing finitude. And one way we can conceive of finitude is scarcity. But when you have a supposed unlimited scarcity, like think about you hear people all the time say like especially when they're defending capitalism and whatnot in an industrial revolution they say the poorest you know some of the poorest people today uh, the the we'll say lower lower middle income live better than most kings did for the last you know 6000 years why because like just think about walking to a walmart and seeing the clothing aisles like we most people could buy almost anything they want from the clothing aisle in America of a of a Walmart like you could have like that super abundance but if scarcity produces tends to be the thing that produces creativity if out for us humans if our finitude with the limits helps us actually be creative that means that potential is great but it, to be actualized it has to be something specific right and so part of kids becoming adults is Killing the absolute potential of certain avenues that they could go to, and but becoming, but in doing that, they become something real in the world, right? You have to kill a fantasy that can go literally anywhere in order to become a really existing thing. But when I was talking about that with the kids, I was like, think about that, how that hits you personally. I think you just hit it. Like, we can be a million things. This is why I think branding is important for a company because branding is a search for an identity. As a company, as a corporation, mm-hmm. whatever, like Matt Frad's branding stuff. When I see the logos, the fonts, the stuff that yep. they use, I immediately yeah. know that's Matt Frad. Even if his guest picture or – mm-hmm. yeah, you immediately know. Even when he uses sacred art for a YouTube thumbnail, the guy that he has doing, which I think is a phenomenal person, I immediately recognize that as that's Matt Frad's brand. Mm-hmm. And it's cool mm-hmm. because that's his identity to the world or persona or mask or whatever you want to say. But it, you're right. I think there is – uh, I mean, we call it analysis paralysis. When you have so many options to choose from, you can't choose anything. I mean, how many times do I piss off my wife because I'm, like, scrolling through Netflix and she's like, will you just pick something? And I'm like, I can't. I can't. It's <laughs> I the can't. abundance of youth. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is the absolute potentiality from the metaphysical realism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and but it um, – there's also this – like, how often when we – um. When I okay, we I'm gonna say I when I have complained about getting old, it's because of how things are changing and there are like less options. Yeah. And somehow I think we don't trust that by saying I'm going to pick this thing or I'm going to accept this part of my life, and not only am I like, how do you save your marriage for the most part? You lean into it. 
It's yeah. the marriage itself that saves that saves your marriage yep. when things are going like every, I've been amazed. And any time that like we've had a rocky part, the thing that I have to do is actually is not like go out with the boys more or you know <laughs> any of this other stuff. It's like actually spend more time with your wife and like like lean yeah. on your marriage because this is actual um, thing to help this to help it to help it work out. And when if and if. As we age, if we accept it, and not only do we accept it, but we lean into it, that it actually becomes the thing that we value and prize the most. Yeah. And I love how you said that, like, leaning into the thing. So marriage itself is a constraint, right? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm cutting myself off from the absolute potential to be involved with any woman and every woman to being involved with just this woman. But being involved with just this woman Get, and that's what Pope John Paul II, that was his whole argument because he was writing in Love and Responsibility at an age where people were actively jettisoning, jettisoning uh, marriage, traditional marriage, uh, like this legal crap. You know, what is a, why do I need a piece of paper to tell me how much I love you? But his whole idea was once you limit your freedom, your freedom can then become something wholly new. Like you open up a whole new channel. Yeah. So if you cut yourself off from those options with potentially every woman or any woman, and you say, I just want this woman, then you can actually explore the depths of love instead of constantly, constantly putting up a face to win the girl and just hook up with a girl. You're constantly putting up fakeness. And now it's like, here's a person that now has yoked their finances to me, their name to me, their whole existence to me. And I to them, I to her, not them, uh, I to her. And now so we're stuck. So now I can be me. Yeah. And I think when you have symbols in your life that express these realities and help you understand in that and that when it grounds you in that, I do wonder if it gives you that identity that we all lack because we have rejected um, a culture that provides us with that. Yeah. And, and and there are some good things that in, in in the sense of like well why so like you get to become the king just because you were born into this you know like, like there are some valid I'm not trying to say like this is why we need to have Catholic uh, Catholic um, monarchy I'm not um, I'm not one it's not it isn't um, it isn't <laughs> 2008 and two I'm not um 12 like it there is um there's a like the world has improved in some aspects because of this time. You know, be, be, I mean, <clears throat> sorry. I'm glad that I'm going to probably um, live a long time, even though the bulk of the choices that I have made would mean that I'd be dead by the time that I was um, that time I was like my age in any other period of history. You know, yeah. like, yeah. like, so that's I'm that makes me very happy that I live in the age of like we have a um, medicine and we you know ha- have like we have um science, but it doesn't mean that I need to reject all this other stuff either, or this other stuff doesn't doesn't really have meaning but the yeah. problem is because the culture doesn't provide us with that there is really no there's really no inertia behind that it takes almost a little bit of a um herculean effort to try to make this so like i have to choose oh, okay how do um what are the clothes i'm going to wear why am i going to wear them what are the colors that i want to you know like what do i want to say about myself and that takes a cho- that takes some choice and actually more work than it like than it I even might feel is worth it. But I do wonder if you know if we start to do that, it provides me. I'm actually able to ground myself in reality more. Yeah. So I wear uh, a collared shirt with a tie and dress slacks with black shoes 
and black socks when I go to mass, right? I dress up for mass. So yesterday I'm getting about to get into the car. My son Thomas comes up to me. I said, Thomas, do I look good for mass? Am I dressed appropriately? And he goes, no. I go, okay, what, what do I need to do to get dressed appropriately? And he goes, he walks up and he touched my shirt and tie. I had a jacket over it. He touched my shirt and tie and he goes, that's what you wear to work, daddy. Why are you wearing that to mass? And I started laughing. I was like, because daddy dresses up for work too now. And I never did. I never did. But there was someone made a comment like, um, okay, I'll come clean. Someone made a comment about Jordan Peterson. Uh, and he said, <laughs> if you watch his old classroom videos, he has like a button-up shirt or whatever. But he was, it was very sloppy, untucked, you know, whatever. He said, but when he started doing these 12 Rules for Life tour, that's where you have this image of Jordan Peterson in a three-piece Italian suit. It's bespoke. It's custom-made, blah, blah, blah. And not just because he got his health and fitness in order, but also because – he said, if I'm up on stage and young men and women are looking at me and I embody something uh, important for them, I need to dress the part. And I never did that. So he always got his hair cut, wore the nice suits, blah, blah, blah. And I realized, like, okay, okay. And when I go into youth ministry, right, we were always taught T-shirt and jeans, be relatable. But there's an element of, like, also be aspirational. And no teenager is going to relate to a 38-year-old. So be aspirational, be authoritative, be, be competent, look the part of a competent person who wants to be stable in their lives, not someone who looks like them. They have enough 20-somethings who pass for teenagers in their lives. Okay. Now it's time to be a 30-something who looks the part of mentor and elder brother rather than um, I'm not their judgmental father, but also at the same time, I'm not their buddy-buddy. I'm not Matthew McConaughey in Days and Confused. You know, who I, I get older, but, the, you know, they say the same age, right? Yeah. You realize that half of our audience isn't going to get that reference. All right, all right, all right. Is Daisy Confused a good, a good movie? I think so. I liked it. I don't remember. And I remember, like, one time when I was I'm watching it in, in high school, I, I had this thought of, like, oh, shit, this is about my parents. When like uh, they were in the woods and they're like all like drinking and stuff, my dad had told me stories of things like that. They, and I was like, yeah. "Wait, is this is this what he meant?" I don't think he, he was like. And then we were I'm drinking beer and I'm getting drunk. I think he was just saying like, "Yeah, we used to go and we'd all hang out like in the woods at a thing, kind of you know." Yeah, I was like, "Oh, they were drinking after the football game." Yeah, yeah. My dad started to he uh, started to um, he had his first up cigarette when he was in junior high school. And he was just like, yeah, this is just what you did. <laughs> and so his whole life, I, um, he had to have a pack of cigarettes in his in even when he even when um, he didn't smoke in his glove compartment box because he had had one his entire life. Whenever he whenever he, he drove, it's just like what you did. Isn't that like, funny? Every, so I mean, the nature of a symbol for that, like right, like you're participating in this cultural chunk that I don't smoke, but I still have to have them here. Yeah. I think that's so funny. Which, like, for me at the time, because I, because like, I found that and I was like, oh my god, he started to smile. I was like, I thought he was hiding it, and he goes, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'll tell you why. Like, I have, to, I just have to have it. <laughs> like, that's like, so funny. Like, I, you know, I just, and I, and and for me, I was like, wait, what? Why? And but then when you stop thinking about it, like, he had, you know, the whole his whole like his whole life when he drove, that's what he did, and so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting. Two things came up out of this that the modern age has that past didn't. You have hyperabundance and immediate gratification, right? And those two things, right, the abundance, the lack of scarcity probably brings about confusion in identity and roles and how we exist in the world and navigate one another. And then immediate gratification 
tends to take our eyes off of the future and puts it on the present. So no wonder you have massive amount of debt and all this stuff because the abundance is right here and I want to be happy right now. I don't want to be happy 30 I, – I don't know what you mean by sacrifice now to have more later, deferred gratification. Like it's harder and harder to kind of see the value in that when I can swipe a credit card and get immediate access to the life it took my parents 20 years to build I can have right outside of college. Is the real value actually in trying to do it? Oh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. It's that. It's the process. Yeah. Right? It's the process. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, I, and I think that invests our life with meaning. Symbols are meaning. That was the point of what I was trying to say, like, with the college letter. Like, it's not just ink on a page. It's my past and my future summed up in one document. Am I accepted to Harvard or not or Franciscan or not? Right. And I think the symbols, that's why people hold on to sentimental items because those items represent grandma. They don't just represent a nice thing that grandma owned. Right. They represent grandma to me. And this is what I hate about the minimalist movement is it's so easy to say thank you and to throw it in the trash than it is to take ownership and be like, yeah, no, this is an heirloom. This is a part of who I am because it's who she was. Right. This is this is Mm -hmm. in a very real way myself. And grandma. It's not just a thing. And I think that in a materialist society with abundance and with immediacy, we can think of in those terms. We lose the attachment to the past, which is what corporations want and it's what the state wants. Because if you don't have a past, they are your past. Who controls the present now controls the past. That's straight up 1984, right? If you control the past, you control the present, you control the future. That's what corporations want. That's what the state wants. Because they get to form your identity. Yeah. I mean, think about the whole identity group thing, right? Uh, when you think of when, when the more progressive side of things defines an individual only as parties to a group identity, you're a woman, you're a person of color, you're this, you're that, you are robbing them, one, of their individuality. And number two, you're robbing them, you're using the past to control the future, right? And there's an element of, like, truth in that, right? There is a history that has to be dealt with, Um but there's also individuals within that history who are trying to make it better. But if you get locked in the past because of, of all these different things, then you can't actually make progress. Then progress is violence. And that's, I think that's what we keep seeing. Um, I don't know. I think, I think we as human beings are only beginning. And Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World, which is all about abundance, right? They, they have a chance or mantras yeah. of why mend when you can spend, right? Like why, why fix something when you can just buy a new one? Um, that's the the living in an age of hyperabundance. We don't even know what the heck to do. I, I don't think we know what to do with. In soccer right now, there's these there's this thing that's going on where you have these omega corporations worth billions of dollars, often backed up by people who are coming out of the Middle East with tons of money due to due to oil and a lot of times very illegal things, which are horrible. They are um, buying these football teams. And what and by football, I, I mean soccer. Uh, so the, there is one group. I think it's called the Manchester City, um, the Manchester um, City Lake Football Group. They were bought by this like oil conglomerate group, and now what they've started to do is they're buying teams in different parts of the world. What you're what you actually have happening is these teams now aren't some sort of like I'm a local kind of I'm thinking they're becoming part of like a global brand that's owned by a group that has no ties to this area at all. And I think it's actually going to make the sport less interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's not my it's not my city club or this group that my old or this team that my older brother liked. 
it's this it's a brand of an oil company you know and like what does that and and there are now 25 of them all over the world and this is like becoming more and more the norm so like in MLS you have a team called um Red Bull New York or 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 the New York um Red Bulls it's owned by Red Bull and like what and basically what um Red Bull has done they've bought all these teams yeah. uh, like here in America and in Asia and Europe I, I I'm not sure if they're in Asia but they are in a couple countries out in like out in Europe and they like it's kind of weird because they just like change these teams from being a like a local um thing and like half of these teams have not half but like your big teams out like out in Europe have already surpassed this whole like they're not part of like local um culture anymore they they are a global brand in in and of themselves but they've kind of gone beyond all of this now and i think that um it puts it puts a lot of money into these teams, but then it really like it's at the cost of their of like their original identity. And this is I think it's going to become like less hollow, sorry, more hollow, less interesting. And I actually think this is why people might then become more interested in international in international football because you can't be owned by some type, but you can't be owned by any type any type of corporation. You can't change the culture of it. But you can't like it's they can't have ads. On, like on their jerseys or anything like yeah. that. Like it's it is the colors. Their their colors are the colors of the country. You can't change that because I mean that's happened with with teams where you've had a team where you've you know ha- you have had a club team that for like one hundred years has been has uh, been the color like blue. Got bought by this Asian o- by, bought by this Asian owner. Changed the team to red. Because it was some good luck in his culture, uh, and the fans were like, "What? No! Like this is actually kind of a like we're a blue like this is kind of a big deal. You can't just do this." And um, anyway, sorry, that's kind of a weird rant, but I think that's kind of an example of like. So, so you all, you radically alter the symbols that the team identifies with. People might say who don't understand the symbols, get over it. It's just a color, mm-hmm. and it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not. It embodies action. It's cognitive as well as performative. This is us in soccer form. So then you look at that and apply it to the Catholic Church and our liturgy and apply it to fasting on Fridays, right? We had, like, the, the things we did and said and used as symbols in the artwork, most Catholics today have no clue what that is. Yep. I mean, just think about yep. the symbolic meaning of every Roman Catholic in North America in the 1950s on Fridays ate fish or some not they did not eat meat. So they're out at restaurants and they're not eating turkey subs for lunch and you know whatever, you know pastrami or whatever. They're not doing that. So an yep. entire culture existed around the Friday fast and what that meant for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Like you're a practicing Catholic if you do the Friday fast. It's not like going to mass on Sunday. It's something different. It's something that's in your home, in your life, on your calendar. Not a place you go to for an hour where you watch other people do things, but in your home. Like this is you on your own as both an individual, as a family, as a culture, as a subculture within America, as a thing that's global. You all participate in this, and the church just dismissed it. And like, think about the ad orientum and what that mm-hmm. does. Like, it's, regardless of where you stand on the ad orientum, we've done it. Since the beginning, and then we switched it in the 60s, in an age of revolution, right? You have Vatican II, which I love, and then you have what happened after in the spirit of Vatican II. But I think the symbolism that fell away, right, has done irreparable damage to the body. 
Yes. Because yes. the symbols yes. are performance as well as knowledge. It's the union of the two. It's cognitive, performative. And when we do, we say, oh, we dispense with the symbols. So then you have someone like Bishop Raymond Burke who celebrates with the full medieval garb or uh, – uh, Pope Benedict, who sit the full medieval garb, and people mercilessly trash them, right? Like, uh, like, oh, you're wearing gloves? Not enough gloves as an archbishop or whatever, like the Burke memes were that were so funny. Um, but that's the thing that drives me insane is we dispense with the symbols, uh, as Chesterton's line says, when a, when a modern man sees a, a marker on his field, he rips it up. He doesn't know why it's there, so he gets rid of it. And he said, that's the sin of modernity. We don't know why it's there, so we get rid of it. We don't know what we're doing. The problem is we don't know what we're undoing. And that's the problem when we F with symbols that matter, is we're actually denying knowledge that matters. There is nothing more powerful in symbolic representation than the liturgy, right? Because we're saying these actions that we do up here actually change the fundamental fabric of reality. This piece of bread that men and women labored to produce, the fruit of the earth, the fruit of the vine, is now transformed by the word of God into the body, blood, soul, into the very logos of the universe. That's a big deal. And we're like, ah, give it in your hand. Uh, you know, like, like the posture. I saw so many people going up to receive communion, and they're required to do it in their hands at our church because of COVID, with their hands in their pockets right before – they pull their hands out of their pockets and then put their hands forward. And you're like, there's just no respect there. There's no, there's no cognitive awareness yeah, there's, of, of the symbols. Going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's – we're so – I'm doing it again. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot about how we want everything to be easy. And so I tend to associate easy with good. And so if it's good, it should be easy to do or it should be – and that's not really true. But we're, I'm so geared towards that that it's hard for me to break out of that mindset because to have a life that is more filled with symbols that I'm intentionally creating and participating in actually takes work yeah. that's not very gratifying at all in the, in the beginning. And it's, it's actually a tremendous amount of effort, which I which I know we have um, talked to, we have um, talked about before. But I think it's important to remember that, that as we tr- as because I really want to try try to do this more, but it's like I don't even know like where to begin. Yeah. And wouldn't it just be easier to not worry about this? Yes, it would be. It would be so much easier. It would be so much easier, like giving up meat on a Friday when you're doing the carnivore diet. <laughs> what the? It's like, well, more tuna? Oh, dear God. This would be so much easier if I wasn't doing this. So but much in, sodium. So much sodium. <laughs> but in so doing, uh, there is a deeper level of meaning. Right? And that's, I think, like we cannot live without meaning. But it's hard to participate in the symbols of our ancestors. It's hard. Like, think about this. When, you, when you're a teenager and you discover what it means, and this is – I know a lot of people who are like this. When you discover what it means to be Irish or Scottish as a white person living in America and you have a strong tie to one of those countries, the first thing you do is look up your family crest. Like, wait, what? Irish? Blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? Blah, blah. And you find out oh, – and you go and you look it up. You look at things about your history. You wonder why the heck – like, didn't we pres- – my dad, like, we talked about this all the time. My dad said the only thing from Ireland that we had was a piece of uh, – a saucer. And me and my brothers broke it when we were, like, four. And it was my great-grandmother oh, no. and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, So nothing endured. But you think, like, oh, what a tragedy, that last thing. But all the things were gone from Ireland. All yeah. the stuff they brought over. Yeah. That was the last of them. 
But yeah. you start to think about it, and it, like, what did it really mean to them? It starts to lose. So we're rootless cosmopolitans, and that's the great danger of today. Because if you're rootless, then anything, then what defines you can be literally, it is the spur of the moment, right? And it's emotions. We are living in the aftermath of all. Like, the damage yeah. has been done. Yeah. And so we have, we, it's not about trying to preserve what was. It's actually now going to be more about, tr- it's, a, it's a rediscovering of the past and what these things yeah. meant. It's, it's not a, about trying to hold on to it, which I think is a th- one thing that a lot of certain rad trads, not all, not all, but certain people, or you can put like really anyone into this into this category. It's this thing of if we lose this, then this is gone, and it's like oh, it's already kind of screwed. So let's like, it's not necessarily about preserving these things as it is about rediscovering their their Im- their importance and trying to apply it in our lives, not when necessary, but um, when it fits. Not like I don't mean that that in a utilitarian way. I mean that in a more um, uh, this actually is given meaning to this, as opposed to oh, now I feel special and cool. Yeah, man. It's 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 like if we start going to a church that really, you know, has the altar and it faces east, has a beautiful has a has a uh, great like liturgy, but we don't pray, we don't go to confession, really, we don't really try to have, we don't try to engage with our faith in a deep, real, and personal way. Then what the hell was the point of doing it in the first place? Yeah, yeah, and the the symbols have me. So going back to the crown, right? The crown. And the gold, gold always represents the light of the sun, right? It's this, it's the sunlight, it's enlightenment, it's, it's not just power, but it's enlightenment. And power that's enlightened is responsibility, right? And so that's why, whether you're talking about here in the Americas or in Egypt or in Babylon, the pyramid was like the symbol of choice for demonstrating this power because it's like, I stand on top of the whole body, right? Everything exists. And the reason why I have the power is not just because I'm the strongest or I'm the the eldest son, but I'm the most competent, right? And he talks about uh, this one notion of the Babylonian kings. What did they do? Almost every culture with a strong single ruler, a monarchy, had some ritual whereby they renewed the monarchy through killing the king. Right, so they would do that in the Babylon, uh, Babylonian. Are you a good enough Marduk? Right, you're supposed to be the incarnation of Marduk. Are you good enough? And in the the Israelite tradition, right, of the renewal of like the understanding that Yahweh is the king, you just serve as his firstborn son over the people, and you're adopted the day you put on the crown. And there's a whole bunch of coronation psalms that go with that that were chanted in the temple when the son of David had the crown on. But you're not like it's funny because you're not known as the king in and of your own right, you're known as the son of David and the son of God, not like I'm the, it's not about you. It's about the place where you stand in that, in the house of David and things Mm. that matter about that. Yeah. And you know, the best part of a democracy is the, every four years we kill our leader, right? We ritually kill him through this thing called voting, right? Maybe he'll get in. Maybe he'll won't, maybe he won't, or we'll put a new guy in his place. And it's supposed to be something like that. Like it's a renewal but, uh, you know, and it could be – and that's why I think, like, mock elections are such a bastardization of the symbol, right? Like, you know, the like the the, fake, the elections where 
uh, in communist uh, behind the Iron Curtain where they would win like 99 to 1% of the vote, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) People still want me. They go through a ritual of having a fake competitor that the Politburo would select every two years or four years or whatever to run against, and then they would get annihilated, and then probably they'd get killed afterwards even though they were selected. Yeah, we told the uh, people that we told to vote for the other guy have been killed. Yeah, we have thinned our population by 1%. (laughs) <laughs> just so happens to be the one percent that voted for the other guy that well, we put I, up as the stooge tell me what you think about this thought too here's a hot take for all you kids Ba-da-da-da. what goes away first is it the dignity is it the dignity of the person or is or is it symbols or is it both i don't, I don't think it I, see that's the thing with mythology it always is both you don't have the one without the other you kill god you have to kill the symbols that embody god Right, you have to you have to kill the symbols. You, I, the question I would say is, what comes first, the knowledge element of a symbol or the action element of a symbol? Because I think a lot of times, in especially in Catholicism, you have people going through a vulgar ritualism. It doesn't mean anything. It's just this thing we do. And when the knowledge is drained from it, it now can't do anything in your life. If I don't believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, what does baptism give me if I get baptized as an adult or if I take my baby to get baptized? Right. And so I think the, uh, you know, I, I probably, probably the symbol gets destroyed first in that regard because then you lose sight of the organizational principles. And me and you talked about Zygmunt Bauman's liquid modernity, right? Like, how can you have symbols that endure with knowledge when everything is liquid? You can't. Well, and if I think when life, has no meaning and you can reconstruct it and you can de- destroy it however you want. Like it's impo- like the culture will never regain the ability to understand the power of symbols as long as abortion exists. Because it just life life now has 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 no meaning so I can't be bothered with symbols. So it it might be uh, it might be of the symbols that are a part of like helping us maintain our sanity right right now. So that's I don't mean right now in terms of like the I don't mean because of the like elections. I just mean in a post Christian yeah. culture, um, these symbols can help us maintain our you know like our sanity and our understanding of like well, why we're doing of what we're doing and why we are doing this. Did I use that quote recently from who's that last week tonight with John Oliver? Uh, he talked about drones, predator drones in Pakistan. Did I talk about that recently? He made this comment that I thought was so powerful. He was talking about – he was criticizing the U.S. use of drones under the end of Obama and and the beginning of Trump administrations, Um, the use of predator drones to bomb people, right, in Afghanistan and Mm -hmm. Pakistan. And he said – he was reading an article by a Pakistani, like 18-year-old or something like that, which basically said – when you hear the noise of the drone, like we're afraid to go out during the day because the drone and in clear days, the drones can find us easier and it just produces so much fear. And he said this line that I thought was so powerful. He said, think about that. A blue sky, forever the symbol of God's blessing on your life, fills people with fear. Ugh. And I thought, okay, so think about that. A doctor forever in Western civilization since uh, the Hippocratic Oath a symbol of life is now because of abortion and euthanasia, a symbol of death dealing, right? It, it's a bringer of death. How do you get to abortion? You first have to view a pregnant woman, the pregnancy of a woman as a problem. 
How do you get there? Well, you have to destroy the symbols around the gift of pregnancy, childhood, the promise of the future. Children aren't the promise of a future. Children ruin my future, yeah. my present, yeah. right? But before you can even get to that, you have to have a materialist mechanist world. Maybe we destroy symbols so that we can destroy persons. Like when you become a mechanistic culture, a materialistic culture where nothing matters but the whirling atoms – but matter, then you start taking a different – the way you view the world becomes different. It has different meanings. So mm-hmm. come on, Luke. It's, it's the color blue. Now it's red. It's fine. No, yeah. no, it's not. It's not fine. Yeah, it is. It's fine. It's just a color. It's just a clump of tissue. It's just a you – know, and it's like, yeah, but it's nested in a whole bunch of other meanings. A pregnant woman is the most valuable sign of the future health of our culture. Now it's an inconvenience. Right, a baby. Yeah. Right, the future yeah. is now. Well, it disrupts my marginal utility, you know, or income or whatever. So I, I, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot there that we could unpack yeah. forever. That's why I, f- I think that's the real reason why I find Jordan Peterson so fascinating is not clean up your room. Don't tell me how to use f- speech and compel speech. But like, I'm trying to uncover why Catholicism matters so much to me and doesn't to my friends that we grew up together. They don't see the power of the symbols, and I am all in on it, maybe, mm-hmm. as one, one avenue. What's one area in your life that you think you can, that you can invoke, like you can use a symbol? Oh, my parenting. My parenting. How so? Well, so with my sons, when teaching him to go to Mass on Sunday, my son Noah, because we don't, you know, you're always, he's always growing out of clothes. That boy is a, is a sprout. And uh, so he's like, why do I have to wear these things? And I said, because there's a thing called respect. And when we dress a certain way, we show respect to certain people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you go to Mass, you want to show respect to the priest, to the people sitting next to you, but also ultimately to our Lord. And then when, you, when we were in the pews, I said, genuflect. Every time you exit this pew, you genuflect to the tabernacle because that's where Christ is and he's the king. And you bend the knee to the king. You always do that. It's a sign yeah. of respect. Yeah. So I keep saying that to my boys and my girls. I want them to understand this is respect. This might be just a building where you see your friends, but it's not a play place. I, I must say that a million times. You see this building? It's a church, not a play place. Those are different things. Quit running. You know, stuff like that because they yeah. don't want to run to their friends. That's yeah. where I see it. That's cool. I, um, I agree with that. Those are things that I've uh, – not the dressing up for, for, for math. Part. I always have like a little – this is where the yeah. like rebellion side up comes in. I'm like, don't tell me how to dress. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, screw you. I'm actually trying here. Um, but um, <laughs> um, I want in my basement, I want it to be a place of culture and community and le- like, but I like real leisure in the good sense of like this is things that I don't have to do that I'm doing that are actually going to make my life better. Yeah. So what we have on the walls, what we um, – how we arrange the couch near the TV and all. I want it to, I want it to feel, um, I want it to be a symbol of like that somehow. So I'm putting, uh, you, uh, this isn't going to work for any of the people who are home, but like, I just put this in a frame. This is like an image of the, of a play. This is like a map of <laughs> the play that when the U S won against Algeria in the 2010 world cup of, uh, in the, in the 92nd, uh, in the 90 uh, second minute, um, I want to put things on the walls that are like these are exciting, fun, cool things that actually create a sense of identity and enjoyment and 
and uh, joy. And I, I want to do it in a way where there's things like of, like it's it's not just like here's my faith stuff upstairs and like downstairs is where I you know have my movie posters. I want to intertwine the yeah. two somehow. So have this idea to have anything that's about the faith. I'm not sure what you like. I, there's perhaps like a quote and you know like image of a saint. But as it relates to culture, I want those to be kind of higher up on the walls than anything else. Not perhaps like not like insanely high where it's like what? But like in a way that is aesthetically unpleasing somehow that fits with the golden omen ratio. I don't know how. But like there's there seems to be a little bit more importance on those things than on the other things about sports and uh, like um, sports and movies. But also while like acknowledging that those sports and movie stuff are important too. Yeah. Yeah. I love Given, it. I love yeah. it. Because so it's anyways, your identity. Yeah. Take Take one room in your house and make it beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really what I'm trying to do. It's just oh make that man, did I just give you Jordan Peterson's more rules for life in his upcoming book that comes out in March? <laughs> yes, I did. Thank you, podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please be sure to go check out the Seek Conference, Seek 21, coming up February fourth, yeah. fifth, uh, and sixth. I believe it's going to be awesome and extravaganza. Also, we're going to be there. Also, stay tuned after this episode. We have a special. Uh, showcase of our sponsor that you already heard from, uh, known as Stereo. Uh, stay tuned for this clip right now. Does that get released this? I thought that was next week. Week? Oh, shit. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was the you week of the 24th. That. that was so good. That was so good. I'm going to cut it and add it to the next week. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's not this Friday. It's next Friday, the 25th. Week no, because tomorrow, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll put the thing on Patreon today. So Okay. 